0: Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I see the red dot. I think it's recording. <laughs> All right. I'm here with Alan Booker. We're going to uh, explore some more of the big black book, Permaculture Designer's Manual with Bill Mollison. And uh, on our, in our last episode, I think that we uh, got we got through two pages. We got through not even two pages. <laughs>
1: well, we also got through the preface and some other things, upfront material, so a little more than two pages. Okay,
0: fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so a couple of pages. But for Chapter 1, we uh, we did uh, Section 1.1, and there are two sections left, and we'll see if we've got time today to do all of this. But for me, myself... The first section is section 1.2, Ethics. And I remember when I very first read this book, I I just had this powerful feeling of joy at reading this section because I felt like it so very much aligned with me. And I was kind of like, oh wow, this is going to be a whole book based on this. This is amazing. It resonates so extremely well with me. I am, I am ex- so excited. I'm so happy to be reading this. That was in the year 2001. It's now the year 2020. Um, so much has changed and um I manage a big forum. I've produced content. I have observed uh Toby Hemingway being verbally abused on the internet in the name of the ethics. Um, I have observed 20 more than 20 incidents of the ethics being used as a weapon. To do, to justify unethical behavior. Now I've, I've recorded podcasts about this. In fact, I have recorded a podcast with Toby Hemingway talking about this very topic. And part of it, I said to Toby, do you think that Monsanto could justify what they do in the name of the permaculture ethics? And he said, yes, unquestionably. Um, I'd, I'd, I would like to ask you, Alan, the exact same question here in just a moment, but I, I just want to say that as I'm reading this, it is now, it now brings me a lot of pain. This is, this (laughs) section, this section is why, is the part that made me think I can never teach a PDC. The most I could ever do in good conscience is be a guest instructor. Um, and the reason is is that I would get totally hung up on the ethics. In fact, I think that it would be easy to spend 20 years debating every sentence of this section. And, and it reminds me of people who debate stuff in the Bible. In fact, a lot of the things that are mentioned here – Seem like things that could become somebody's Bible. I I feel like I'm already, you know, getting so much of this stuff about how Paul Wheaton runs a cult at his place, which I'm totally cool with embracing a gardening cult. But but of course, those people don't know that I I embrace the concept of a garden cult. They're just saying cult. Um, they do say uh, a charismatic leader, which I I then reply and say. Thank you for that compliment. <laughs> so, but, but they're saying that it's like they're thinking of something religious and it's, and I do think that it's like this thing fuels that. This section of the book fuels that. So I, I, I want to encourage people to feel the joy that I felt the first time I read this section and at the same time, I think that there's a few of us that have been down this road so long that are battered and worn and um, are tired of these battles. And it's like for every line in here it could have so many interpretations, even though Bill probably worked really hard to close a lot of loopholes where people would do unethical things within finding justification in a single sentence of what he has to say. I, I should also say that that Jack Spirico firmly believes that all of permaculture is born from the ethics in a way that if you ever encounter any kind of problem anywhere, all you got to do is think of the ethics and everything will be solved. And that the people that are behaving poorly in the name of the ethics are... Um, are obviously wrong, and I don't know the way that he talks about it. So, so Jack and I had like this two-hour-long debate on a phone, some place where my cell reception was really awful. I think it was in Port Townsend at the moment, and, um, and basically his philosophy said is something where I believe. He needs to be standing next to a person whenever they contemplate the ethics in order to be able to shout them down that they are wrong. <laughs> and and so I just kind of feel like that's not going to work. He, he can't be in all places at all times, let alone I, – I don't think he really wants to do it other than just shouting at somebody. And I know when he gets in a shouting match with somebody, it doesn't go well for anybody involved, not even for Jack. So um, – I kind of – I feel like in all of the stuff of permaculture that I have observed, the the place where things are growing and doing beautifully and things are magnificent is where people just tend to not talk about the ethics. And in any situation where the ethics is brought up, I now cringe because it's like, here comes the shitstorm. It's all gonna go to hell now. And and it's like, I don't know, I just feel like people that are doing good things are enjoying life and they are not talking about the ethics. Whenever the ethics comes up, that's when it's gonna be ugly and when the permaculture ethics are gonna be used as a weapon to justify unethical behavior. Okay, now, let me circle back and ask the question that I asked so long ago. Of Toby Hemingway and now present it to you. Do you believe that Monsanto could justify poor behavior using the three ethics of permaculture?
1: Absolutely. You You know, and so, but I'm going to, I've had to think about this for a while. You know, I think about I've been a, a working engineer on large scale projects for 30 years and so I've had to think about some of these things for a bit. And um, so the first thing I would say, I've actually, you know, in teaching PDCs with you, Paul, there, and, and you'll come in and say things to the class, and they'll have questions for me after you kind of leave the room, and I'll say, okay, look, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that any powerful tool can and will be abused. Let me say that again. Any powerful tool can and will be abused, any powerful tool, because it's powerful. And there's going to be people who are out there and they're looking around and they're saying, oh, look, here's a powerful tool. I can use it to my advantage. So I guess the first thing I would say is, does that mean that we basically should say that all powerful tools are off limits because, you know, they can be abused? And I, I don't think that's maybe the best approach. I also will agree that when ethics are working in a culture that they are seldom talked about because they are part of the ground of what's making the culture work and therefore they don't need to be talked about but when somebody is attempting to abuse them the thing they have to do is make a big you know stink about it and um so I'm reminded I did get a chance to hear some teachings out of um, from some of the leaders of the Haudenosaunee people where they have had a a form of governance for a long time. And they basically said, you know, um, our our system of governance is based upon our stories. And um, when we won't if you write down our stories on paper, then um, that's not our that's not our. Our law anymore, because as they, they basically said, as soon as you write it down on paper like that, people get into what they said quote were meaningless arguments over words. In other words, then then you have kind of weaponized it, right? You can get to that point where you're like, no, 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 this is it. It was written down like this instead of actually understanding the spirit of what was what the story was telling you. Right. Um. So having said that, you know, let me back up and kind of. You know, talk about like how I came at this. And the very first thing I realized, I came across a quote from a that um, that kind of helped me frame it, and it was uh, from a, a guy named Peter Paul Ver- Verbeck, and he said, "When you design, you materialize morality. In other words, it's impossible to design anything without making moral and ethical choices because, in the instant that you decide." To design something, you're taking limited resources, right, limited uh, human capacity and so forth, and you're deciding how to use it. You're deciding who benefits and who doesn't benefit and so on and so forth. So the first thing I, I started realizing as I started playing with this idea of being a designer and designing big, powerful things was, you know, you can either have a set of ethics that are um, implicit and unexamined, or you can have a set of ethics that are explicit and examined, um, but you're going to have you're going to be making ethical and moral decisions as a designer. You just are, whether you want to accept that or not. And so, as I thought about it, I kind of came to the the the, port, you know, the, the point where I kind of said, okay, this is what Bill Mollison is understanding here in this first chapter. He's like, if we are going to be designers and we're going to create. Basically, this infrastructure of civilization that supports human beings to have a culture and live, then there will be ethical dimensions to every one of those decisions, whether we want to, 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 you know, accept that fact or not. And that being the case, should we base this system of design on implicit, unexamined ethics or explicit exa you know, ethics, and so therein lies this very interesting thing where we've set up um, a system whereby instead of people who, you know, want to claim that they're doing permaculture, um, being able to slide by and, you know, um, not have to at least examine it where there's where they don't bring it out, where it can be discussed. But at least if, if uh, Monsanto wants to come out and, and justify what they're doing based upon the ethics, then we can have a rigorous fact-based discussion about that. And if they want to assert to me that they are taking care of the earth and taking care of people, then um, we can have a very specific fact-based discussion about that. And I think I would win that discussion hands down. Um you would, so you
0: would win it in your mind and mm-hmm. they would win it in their mind. Well, that kind of comes down to
1: um, you know, if there are basically you can have people who get to the point where they will just basically reject facts. Sure. And if they oh, get yeah. to that point then no, we can't we can't have a, a, a conversation if they're gonna live in fantasy world, right? If they want to look at all of the evidence we have now that we're having tropic collapse that we're having, and a lot of it is based upon, you know, the destruction of things that they are helping to destroy, that their science is telling them that they're helping to destroy, and that they can't deny that they're helping to destroy unless they're denying absolute, like, pretty, as about as close to undisputable fact as you can – if they want to, if they want to go there, then okay. Now we've gotten to the point where you're like, okay, you're no longer accepting reality, and therefore this conversation isn't useful, and I'm going to stop having this conversation with you because it's not useful anymore, right? It's a waste of my time. Um, they're going to say it,
0: all the exact same stuff back at you. They're going to, yes. they're going to say, you know, you just have lost total touch with reality. Everything you're saying is make believe. And the things that you're saying are facts are not. And I mean, they're, they're going to, they're going to fight and uh, they're going to say the exact same thing back to you. And you're right. Having this conversation with them would be pointless Mm -hmm. because in the end they're going to still be, they're going to even be more entrenched and, and like, because They're gonna, they're gonna even more firmly believe that the three ethics clearly, uh, advocate what they're doing over what you're doing, and you're gonna be even more entrenched. That's, that's why I'm kinda thinking like, these, these ethics aren't really helping us. And And I will, I will disagree with that. Um, No, that's cool. Please disagree. And that means that when you read this section, -hmm. It still brings you joy. Whereas when I read this section, I just get a big blackness that, that fills up in me because I just feel like it's full of stuff where unethical people will find traction to justify their unethical stuff. And they will even come to me and say like, if you're going to say, this is, this, this section is why Seth Holzer wish wishes to abandon permaculture mm-hmm. but he still sticks to it for his own reasons this is why so many other leaders in the world of permaculture have abandoned the word permaculture because of this section this it's they're they're just sick to death of getting of people coming to them saying well it's not permaculture because you because there's this line in there that says and they're just like you know what? I've got other shit to do besides debate with this parade <laughs> of people that wanna debate about this stuff. Like and, it's yeah. a Bible.
1: Yes, and you know, I've I've liter I really haven't had that problem. I think probably because, you know, I am I have been dealing with design professionals. Um, and that has just not become a problem for me. I have literally never had this problem. Um, there are a whole, there's a category of, of folks that, you know, yep, that's, I can absolutely see that happening. Uh, I've been able to go into professional design situations and have this discussion and actually bring up the ethics and so forth and have perfectly, you know, logical, rational discussions. And if somebody wanted to come to me and, and like do that, I'm just like, well, I'm sorry. Um, I'm just not wasting my time on something that's not going to be productive. However, I'm also going to acknowledge because I, I understand it inside of myself that everything that I am doing does have a moral and ethical decision that, you know, every time I design and therefore I'm responsible to my own conscience to, you know, understand what ethical and moral decisions I am making. And, um, I think that that, you know, that, that I think is important Because if you don't, then you're basically, you know, what are your criteria? Well, your criteria is like what you've wound up with in in certain places in, you know, a large business, which is, um, quote, return on investment. And, of course, that's not return on investment for, you know, the system. It's return on investment for a, a tiny, tiny part of the subsystem. And when you start looking at how, you know, how abundance is created in complex living systems. It's created, as permaculture tells us, and now complexity science is telling us, by the proliferation of beneficial interrelationships between all the components on the system. And so... You know, if you start looking at and you start metricing success by something as one-dimensional, as like return on investment on a particular small piece part of the, of the system, then it starts – you start moving towards failure. And what I guess I would say is that, you know, people get – people are going to argue the ethic out of their own set of narratives, their own worldview, their own narrative. And the one advantage of having those discussions with somebody, even if they're – going to be like a Monsanto and kind of like argue these sorts of things, is that at some point in time, um, reality intersects with their narrative. In other words, right now what's happening is that realities are emerging and things are happening on the ground around the world that are fundamentally disproving a lot of the assumptions that Monsanto and other companies of this nature have been working on for Several decades. And so, you know, it's like, hmm, now they are faced with this cognitive dissonance. The cognitive dissonance is they have a set of stories that they've been telling themselves about how the world works and now the world is failing to cooperate. And a lot of the things that they have been claiming are now failing and it's starting to affect their business and it's starting to become something they can't ignore anymore so in the end you know it's like uh, as we like to say uh, it doesn't matter if grab if you believe in gravity gravity believes in you and so if you go off and and you know do what you're going to do for a while then you will eventually wind up with the reality of what you're doing and um, you know and and so at some point in time that means that they that you know the the narratives. If it's a false narrative that they're using to sort of like blind themselves to the reality of what they're doing, then that's that has a that has a time horizon, um, and um, eventually they've either got to just become completely psychotically detached from reality, or they've got to acknowledge that the story that they're they've been using to justify their actions is failing. So I wish there was a perfect solution to this. Uh, there isn't, but I would say that um, there are I've had some very productive discussions with a lot of professional design folks who are realizing uh exactly what we're talking about that that, that there is a social and ethical and moral you know dimension to what they're doing and um because you know and there are some folks out there i think and paul probably you know you're going to run into a lot of them because you're running permies and so forth you know where they're they're sort of like uh attracted like moths to the light you know it's like ooh, uh we're going to go over here and um and and it's what they're they're doing is they're sort of wrapped up in um this uh idealistic worldview um uh that is self-centered and they're you know, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe them except to say that's not the that's not the folks I've been working with. Um, the folks I'm working with maybe are a little more on the professional design side, and I found it to be very useful to have these conversations. Although I will tell you that in my own conversations with um, professional designers, um, I have basically reworded the ethics slightly um, in order to um emphasize the fractal scale at which we're working. And this is one of the first things I teach about in the ethics and say the whole thing is that ethics themselves are fractal. Right? If you if you want to look at it and say, you know, so what is fractal? Fractal means that it that it's something that's self-similar at different scales, right? We could look at it and ask as, you know, we as human beings at a global scale, are we taking care of the earth? Are we taking care of other, you know, the the people and are we basically uh, managing that so that the future is assured, right, that we are main, maintaining inside of planetary boundaries uh, and working with the ecosystems and, such that over time um, they'll be regenerated instead of depleted and destroyed. So you could look at the ethics at that level, right? You could look at it at a national level. You could look at it at a bioregional level. You could look at it at a community level. And then you could come down to where I'm usually working, um, which is at sort of like the project level, right? Um and so it, and it and you can ask similar questions at different scales and it applies slightly differently. In other words, the exact questions you might want to ask to see whether you think maybe you're doing these things. And what I've come down to is at the project you know uh level that um I can word them a little more specifically. Um, so that they can be a little bit more uh, able to be looked at and metriced or measured, and we can ask ourselves some specific questions to see how well we think we're doing, right? And so if I have a project and I have a project scope, then I'm designing what's inside of that project. And so basically what the, the first thing is, you know, are we taking care of all of the ecosystem's inside of our project scope and at the same time are we either helping or at the worst case neutral to external ecosystems and those are like questions i can ask um, and how and of course then i have to have a metric uh, like or a, a, a way of measuring what we mean helpful to ecosystems and i have some definitions for that that i've written down they're technical that we use when we're looking at this having to do with um what i call a pattern definition of regeneration it's like you know, we can look at and say, are we increasing or decreasing the number of beneficial interconnections in this ecosystem? Are we increasing or decreasing the, the, you know, the population of beneficial elements in this ecosystem? We can talk about these things. We can look at them. We can measure them. And as professional designers, we can say, we know we're creating more resilient and more productive ecosystems inside of our design space when we're doing these things. And so that's the first ethic when you apply it at the fractal scale of a project, the thing that you are designing under your, you know, at a given moment, then you can say, hmm, second ethic. Um, Are we taking care of and meeting all of the needs of the people inside, you know, that are inside the scope of the project while either being positive or um, neutral for everybody else? Because, you know, we, it, it, there are people outside of our project, well some of them we we have no effect on, but we want to make certain that we're at least neutral right to everybody else we want to make certain we're taking care of the people inside of our project scope and so we can ask some questions about that we can we can look at that and then the third ethic, which is like the real the real like you know what what you call the the electric rail that that really gets people going is like what do we how do you even describe the third ethic it's been described like five different ways um, it, with 100 variations on each of those five different ways. And so I thought about it a lot and thought about it a lot. What, what is this at a project scale? How's the third ethic apply at a project scale? I said, well, this is what it seems to me if I want to get it down to where I can think about it. And when I, when I say it to people at first, they kind of go, ooh, that seems different. but then they think about it a little bit and go, now it makes sense. And the third ethic, the way I explain it uh, at project scale is this that we will endeavor to make certain that the project we are creating is an ecological context with all of the surrounding ecosystems and is interacting with those other ecosystems in mutually beneficial ways. Um, And if you think about it for a few minutes, that actually encapsulates what I think Mollison was trying to get to in the third ethic. Um, Because that ecological context completely includes things like return of surplus, um, population density of the project that you're working with, uh, mutually beneficial interrelationships um, with the surrounding, you know, ecosystems and so forth. So I have been kind of working with those in that format um, for working with design professionals in um, trying to figure out, like, the ethical dimensions of working on projects. Um, I haven't tried to tackle, like, how to, you know, at larger scale because I I don't practically work there, Um, like, you know, national scale, national policy scale, and so forth. Um, That's a very difficult problem. So all I've tried to think about is how to tackle this at, like, a project scale and make it specific enough. That we can ask if we're if we're acting in good faith, we can try to ask some questions to see whether, you know, we're we're doing a, a reasonable job, of um, of, you know, taking care of the earth, taking care of the people, and being an ecological context with our surroundings, on the project level that we're working.
0: So first, I kind of want to just throw in there: if we're going to talk about the ethics, let's throw out, we'll, we'll not throw out, but but mention. Most permaculturalists, when they recite the three ethics, mm-hmm. they say uh, earth care, people care, fair share. Yes. And I think fair share is something it, it was created dominantly because it rhymed with the first two. But I believe, yes. I believe it comes from David Holmgren. Is that accurate? I believe so.
1: I would not... You know, yes. Unless I went back and looked it up and was 100% sure I wouldn't say right. definitively, but
0: I think David, I think David
1: has used that at the very least.
0: Okay. All right. All right. So now just real quick, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, here, here are the three phrases that are written, at least in my copy of the Big Black Book. Yes. Uh, the ethical basis of permaculture. One, care of the earth provision for all life systems to continue and multiply. Two, care of people. Provision for people to access those resources necessary to their existence. Three, setting limits to population and consumption. By governing our own needs, we can set resources aside to further the above principles. Okay, now you mentioned that there's like six different third ethics. And um, this one's pretty much forgotten. The third ethic I just read <laughs> off out of the black book is pretty much forgotten. But the one that and you've mentioned your own third ethic, um, which I have a hard time grabbing, but then again, I'm going I need this. to to qualify that by saying I find that I just anymore step away from the ethics and focus more on the techniques, a more Mm -hmm. pulsarian approach, if you will. But there is a third ethic that I've seen used in a few different places, and I really think I, if I'm going to look at the ethics, if I'm going to recite the ethics, uh, I like this one the best because – Fair share can mean so – it just opens up. Just if you're going to say fair share and, you're, and that's all you're going to say, you're not even going to really study it, then a lot of people kind of believe that fair share means you have things that I don't have. Therefore, it would be fair if you gave me some of your things. Right. And if you won't give them to me, then I will enforce fair share by taking those things. And so crime yeah, which, justified under the, a permaculture ethic. But the one right, that which I is like- why I, I
1: don't use like that. that. I will not, I won't, I don't <laughs> use that version.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Uh, I think that's caused so much trouble. But the, the third one that I like that I see around a lot now is future care. So right. you've got earth care, people care, future care. And if you're just gonna leave it at those three, I kind of feel like that's, that's nice. That's nice. I like, I kind of like where it's going there. And it does, it adds a new dimension that is sort of, sort of in here. Sort of, kind of. It's, I mean, it's, when you read all this stuff that he's written, it's, it's as if that was here, as if that was the third ethic, future care.
1: And yeah, if, if I had to pick, like, if I had to pick one of the rhyming schemes, that's probably one of the least worst. Um. <laughs> And there's a reason that I wound up for myself defining in ecological terms, because when you think about ecology, you basically are thinking about living systems that are when they are optimally performing regenerative. And so when you go to looking at making certain that what you're designing is a balanced part of the larger ecology around you then you actually meet all of these things. Number one is the setting limits to population. And p- nobody wants to say that out loud because it is such a trigger thing, right? right. Uh, immediately when you say setting limits to population, all of a sudden what you've done is you people have heard, well, you want to impinge on my reproductive rights, my rights to have children, so on and so forth. You it, All of a sudden there becomes a dimension in there of, you know, racial dimension of racial populations and, you know, all these sorts of things that, that history has piled on to this idea of population control. So if, if you say anything that sounds close to population control, then the problem is when you start to apply, again, there's a, a different fractal levels of fractal scale. When you start to apply that like at a national or an international level, that becomes a political hot potato very, very quickly, less so when you apply it at a site specific scale. I think people for some reason or another seem to have a much easier time with the idea that if I have a finite piece of land, for example, it's a project, and there's other things it could be projects, it could be like, you know other kinds of pro- but if you have a piece of land that 's three hundred acres right I 'm like, can we put twenty million people on that three hundred acres? When they go, well no, of course not, that's silly. Okay, so there's a limit to the number of people we can put on these 300 acres. Yes. Okay, so they're, they're, they're not, they're not off going like, no, nah, you you're, you're now talking about reproductive rights. They're like, they're thinking logistically that there's a certain number of people that you can support in a sustainable and regenerative fashion on a, on a, you know, in, a that scale of a project. Um so when I say that it has to be an ecological context, could we stuff 30,000 people onto a 300 acres and it be an ecological context with its surroundings. That is actually giving and providing back in equal measure to what it's consuming. And the answer is probably not, uh, not using any technologies that we know of right now. So literally in this ecological context that I'm using, it's like, yep, population and consumption are absolutely in there. Um, And as is, if we make certain that we are operating in ecological context and having beneficial interrelationships to everything around, we are taking care of future care because that will create regenerative systems that increase in fertility. And not only over time, they will increase in fertility. So and it's also something that is, again, it's specifically measurable. If I just say future care, I'm like, again, I'm, I'm a very practical designer. I have to make practical design decisions on a particular project. And if I just ask myself, am I doing future care? That's a very amorphous question. Uh, how do I define that? How do I know, like, you know. Again, I get down to the point where it's very difficult. If I say, am I in ecological context with my surrounding, my surroundings, then I'm back down to eco, you know, a number of ecological questions I can ask that are specific and I can look at them and I can say, what are my resource flows? What are my energy flows? What's happening to inter, you know, to, um, uh beneficial interrelationships, what's happening to, you know, my element populations in the system? Uh, am I basically uh, building up so much in the way of a resource on the site that it's becoming toxic? Because typically in permaculture, we say that, you know, uh, waste is when you have a resource that's building up in so much excess that it becomes a problem. And so if you're an ecological context, then what's happening is when you start to build up an excess of resource, you figure out how to couple it into a productive use. If that productive use is not inside your own system, then the best thing to do is couple it to a productive use outside of your system because then you are in ecological context with external systems and you get a mutually beneficial reaction with them because now they're more productive and then uh, incoming resource flows are higher quality uh, over time if everybody is following this, this ethic. So that's why I've kind of arrived at that for project scale and looking at it that way because it gives me something very specific that I can talk to other design professionals about and we can look at it and we can figure out whether it looks like we're doing that or not without getting into something really vague about are we taking care of the future. Uh, and I, I mean, I like, the, I like the idea and I, I think it's an important idea. But for me at a project scale, I, I think it's a little hard to work with practically when you're making day-to-day decisions.
0: And part of it is is that different people are going to have different ideas of what that means. Or Yes. Um, if, and, and then everybody could have – there could be 20 different positions on how to proceed with the project. And all 20 people can point to future care to say, because of future care, mine's the best. And yes. so it's like, okay, that didn't really help us. Pick which of these 20 is the way to go. Um, so yeah, then then
1: you're down to that question of okay, well, okay, how do we how do we if we're all let's just say that for the sake of argument, you have the 20 people and they're all acting in good faith. That is, they're instead of being you know, just self-centered and, and 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 attempting to use this as a methodology to you know their own ends. And so we said, powerful tools can be misused, and there are people who will do that. Let's just say they're all acting in good faith. So how do we, all acting in good faith, then practically speaking, arrive at a good conclusion where we all can have a discussion and say, we all feel good about this. No perfect answer is going to emerge, but this is the best we can probably do. And um, so we kind of have to have something that is a little more – uh, spec- a little more specific, something that we can look at and ask specific question- factual-based questions around, right? And I can ask a factually-based question is, this design over time, does it decrease or increase or decrease the number of beneficial elements in the system? It's a very specific, concrete question that engineers and, you know, architects and and, and designers can ask, Right. right? And and so we we now we're now we're at least having some basis for a good faith conversation um, that we can we can move forward with instead of it being extremely vague.
0: I wanna I wanna quickly address something. There's a phrase that you've used about seven times uh, since we started this podcast, and Mm -hmm. that is self-centered. Yes. And and you have in every case referred to it as a negative. That that uh, <clears throat> if somebody you know like this will work provided that they're not self-centered, and and I kind of feel like um, I I I feel like if we're gonna solve the world's problems, we have to embrace that nearly all individuals, I mean like more than ninety-five percent, are self-centered. And, and it's like, and I, and I'm not, I'm not even convinced that it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, granted, when we watch a movie, we appreciate the heroes that make the sacrifices. That is a noble thing, especially when Mm -hmm. they make a sacrifice that nobody will ever know of. And, and then we really bond with those people and we really appreciate them. But at the same time, I, I feel like when I wrote my book, that a big part of it is, is like, I, I I need to only focus on those items that will improve the world globally for everybody while simultaneously appealing to the immediate benefit of the reader. So uh, a person's going to do a thing that I suggest. They're probably going to do it because it saves the money and adds more luxury to their life. And it's just frosting on the cake that it happens to have global benefit. Whereas there have already been lots of books written about sacrifice that would do more benefit for the, for the global package, but it would have zero personal benefit. And, and, uh, you know, those books aren't doing so well. So I'm kind of thinking like in order to be able to Actually, get everybody to do it or or most like more than ninety percent of the people to do it. there has to be an appeal to the self as well as an appeal to the environment to uh, appeal to global benefit mhm so okay, go ahead,
1: so I was going to say it, it, you know for me again, being a systems engineer for so long, I think one of the things I find interesting is that a lot of cultures that seem to have a good handle on this. It, it, nobody's perfect at it, but they have a better handle on it than others. Seem to understand that um, if if you take a um, a purely self-centered approach, in the sense that my well-being is the only dimension I will consider, that the resulting systems dynamics that come out of each individual doing that will create vastly inferior outcomes for everybody involved. In other words, what happens is that cultures that have some idea about this realize that we're all better off with a certain degree of mutual cooperation than we are basically, you know, it's all about me and only me. And I will attempt to uh, maximize my own thing at everybody else's expense. And what it turns out is that if that's that's what in computer uh, science we would call an anti-pattern, right? At first glance, it looks like that that would give you the best outcome. But when you actually apply the pattern let it run a little bit, you realize, whoop, this is very suboptimal. Right. It turns out if we could actually all cooperate with each other, um, that the mutual benefits of that are such that all of us are doing better than we would have done if we were all basically antagonistic and looking at only for number one. And... um, so, I mean, and, and Mollison even put it back in, you know, back in section 1.1. He says the principle of cooperation, cooperation, I'll quote him, cooperation, not competition, is the very basis of existing life systems and of future survival. And I think he put that there, understanding that these ethics really work in a culture when people realize that there is a certain degree of mutualism uh, in which benefits all all of us individually as well that um, if we basically think of it only through the lens of competition and we don't look at mutualism and some cooperation, that the overall outcome is so inferior that even if you try to grab as much of the outcome as you can, you're going to be worse off than if we found a basis to act in some level of cooperation. So, you know, to me, I guess, when I'm a systems thinker. I'm looking at it and going, are all the elements of the, you know, all the human elements of the system acting in a selfish way in which they are in competition with each other? Or are we realizing that there's a level at which cooperation is going to provide a, a much superior outcome for all of us and that I will get a share of that superior outcome that would be better than anything I could have gotten if um, we were all just being, you know, uh, in, in, um, in competition.
0: So you uh, you pushed several buttons along the way here for me. Uh, yep, I'm good at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is why when we have the PDC here, you're you're teaching the one thing, and then then I get a chance to come in and undo everything you've just taught. <laughs> but but it's like somehow we're both uh, it's it's complementary while at the same time supportive, uh, mutually supportive uh, for this. I don't know, this recipe that we've come up with. But, all right, you mentioned anti-pattern, which yes. suggests that there is such a thing as a pattern. And you also mentioned that this is part of software engineering, but, of course, it originated within the world of architecture, the whole concept of the, the, the patterns. Um, and there's yes,
1: a- but the, anti- the anti-pattern, I believe, came out of computer science initially. helped that. Yes, that's that's why I mentioned that.
0: That's true. Now, and and before being bonkers about permaculture, I was bonkers about software engineering. And in that whole world, I had, much like how I have philosophies about permaculture that are contrary to the norm, I had philosophies in software engineering that were contrary to the norm. And as Mm -hmm. much as, you know, you're not allowed to do that, Somehow I not only found a way to do that, but I seemed to have developed a rather large audience that allowed me to do that. So when it comes to patterns, I was asked to write a chapter in a book about patterns. And my chapter, I believe, fit into one paragraph. And basically part of what I said was, Patterns should be nothing more than an extension of our vocabulary, and on top of that, no pattern is perfect. No pattern should ever be used to point at something and say, "Pattern," therefore we're going to do it my way. Uh, and the same goes for the word anti-pattern, and and it's like a. Um, about half the time I see pattern or anti-pattern used, it's wrong. I'm just going to use the word – I'm going to shorten this whole conversation to, <laughs> down to saying it's 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 wrong. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.